Hi, this is Scott Wilkinson, host of Home Theater Geeks. In episode 60, I talk with sound designer Eric Adol about his work on many major motion pictures. So stay tuned. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Home Theater Geeks is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Home Theater Geeks with Scott Wilkinson, recorded April 4th, 2011, Episode 60, Movie Sound Magic. This episode of Home Theater Geeks is brought to you by Hover.com. Hover is domain name registration and management that's simple. For Hover's transfer concierge service, free for our audience, go to htg.hover.com, offer code HTG. Hi there, Scott Wilkinson here with ultimateavmag.com and hometheater.com. This week's guest geek is Eric Adol, sound designer on movies such as Megamind, Monsters vs. Alien, Kung Fu Panda, and Transformers. So we're going to have a lot of interesting things to talk about today. Hey, Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. I must tell you that uh, everyone who's listening now and watching live, uh, Eric is actually at Sony Pictures Studios uh, working on a super secret project that we can't talk about yet. But uh, hopefully he's going to take us into the dubbing stage where he's working uh, and show us around there a little bit later in the show. <clears throat> for those... For those of you who are tuned into the live audio stream at live.twit.tv or logged into the chat room at irc.twit.tv, can post questions for Eric, and I'll pass on as many as I can. So, Eric, um, tell us how you got started in this business of sound design. Well, uh, that's actually a long story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we only have an hour, so keep that in mind. <laughs> got it. Um, well, uh, I guess it began in my childhood. Um, I started playing music very, very young, uh, classical piano, and uh, started composing with my computer. And uh, I never thought I would wind up getting a career in that field. It was just something I kind of did for fun. But uh, as I went through high school, I started making movies, and that became an interest for me. And when I decided where I was going to go to college, I, I had to figure out, okay, am I going to go into medicine, which is kind of what my family was hoping for and expecting, <laughs> uh, or do I go where my heart is? And uh, so I went to film school, went to here in Los Angeles, um, University of Southern California, and uh, the that kind of got me started in the sound design track for film. And once I graduated, I started working on uh, television shows and did that for a few years. And uh, then around the time of X-Men 2, uh, started getting into the feature world. And uh, I've been here since. Wow. Now, what led you into sound design as opposed to, you know, directing or composing since you're a musician? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, any of the other aspects of filmmaking? Well, um, you know, those, those are things that uh, I still love to do and I still kind of pursue on my own. Uh, but sound just happened to be something that where I could combine a professional career and a life with my love. And uh, it, uh, it just happened to work out. It was a serendipitous kind of lucky connection that got me started on it. And it really mm -hmm. started with uh, my first job offers coming out of film school. 
when I was in film school, I was very involved with the sound department there, doing uh, working at the Spielberg scoring stage, scoring, uh, doing scores for student films and composing myself. And uh, I had an opportunity after college to either work with a production office um, doing feature films, but coming in as a second second assistant and basically doing the Xerox copy machine and the coffee thing, <laughs> or, or getting into the sound end of things as an assistant. And I, I remember comparing the two meetings I had had and just realizing how much more fun people have on this side of the business. Um, the, the joy of doing sound for films is that all of your work is right up there. You can hear it. Um, everything, all of the energy you put into it translates to a, a very tangible product. So it's incredibly rewarding. And I could tell in the very beginning that uh, the people doing it were really loving it. <clears throat> so I think that was a big uh, push for me. I definitely don't want to spend my life doing something I don't love. So mm. uh, what is it they say? Uh, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And uh, yeah, I've yet to feel like I'm going to work. Um, yeah. This, this weekend included. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you're working on a movie, you're working seven days a week, right? I mean, this is a very intense experience. Uh, it, it is. It, it gets very intense. And in fact, we've been doing seven day weeks for a while. Um, I can't talk about the movie that I'm working on right now, but it's a big summer blockbuster film, highly anticipated, and a lot of work goes into it. There's really no shortcuts. Um, it, it just takes a, it takes the time to go through it very precisely. Um, so usually starting around three or four months before the movie comes out, uh, we kind of go from five day weeks to more like six, seven day weeks, uh, mm -hmm. just to, just to hit the finish line. <laughs> and how long, what's the total amount of time in terms of months before the release that you're involved in a, in a given movie. It must vary somewhat, but generally speaking. It does vary. Um, uh, it, it varies from about four or five months to about a year. Mm. Uh, a, movie, a movie like Valkyrie, I did in about four months. Um, but then a movie like Transformers took uh, over a year um, mm. from its inception. And some movies, like the movie I'm working on right now, um, I began designing sounds conceptually uh, two years ago um, and building my library of new, fresh sound effects, building the sonic palette for the film mm -hmm. uh, so that when the picture started coming in, I already had kind of uh, conceptual footing to get started with. So, now, um, how, how did you establish that conceptual footing? Uh, I mean, if you didn't have any pictures, you didn't have any footage yet from, uh, from the movie, how did you know what kind of sounds you would need? Well, you know, it's funny. Sometimes if you get started with picture too early, you can get kind of preconceived notions of maybe what it should be. And I've, part of my process is to try to free myself from the picture in the beginning of the film and just think much more abstractly and conceptually about what I can do with a track and so that might start, I'll start getting ideas from the script. Um, I'll start sort of playing through what emotional beats uh, I want to hit, what sort of feelings I want to get out of certain moments. Uh, and I'll just start creating sounds that um, might apply. And the way I make sounds is I just go out and listen to the world. Uh, if I'm going to be doing a science fiction movie, 
Um, my ear might be a little bit more tuned to strange electrical and tonal sounds and motors and servos and energy kind of sounds. Uh, uh, you start to, when I get on a movie, I start thinking about everything kind of through the lens of uh, what what might be useful for me to collect um, as I'm putting the movie together. So, you must um, have, you mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, what emotional notes you might want to hit and so on. You must have some idea, even before you see any picture, you know, about what the story's about and, and what kind of emotional uh, types of tones there might actually be in the movie before you actually see anything. Exactly. So that gives me a good starting point and a good framework to, to start to build the concepts for the film. And then mm -hmm. obviously, as the film starts coming together visually, the picture editors get their cut together, um, the director becomes more involved with the sound department, then I can dial all of those ideas into the image. And that's a whole nother process, getting the alchemy of the sound and the image to work together. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, sometimes in very unexpected ways, uh, a sound which I never would have thought I might apply to a certain image, once we start putting the sound of the picture, uh, there can be these really unexpected little moments that... Uh, sometimes accidental, but the combination of a completely wrong abstract sound with an image sometimes creates this uh, uh, spark, this... Mm -hmm. uh, a synergy. A, a synergy, and I think that's the art of sound design, is uh, making a synergy between the sound and the picture that elevates the combination above the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We're getting a lot of guesses in the chat room as to which movie you're working on <laughs> but i ain't telling <laughs> might not be hard to guess but uh yeah listen um you're, you're talking about hitting emotional tones and and so on we're going to get into the process the actual process of sound design in a moment but before we do i wanted to talk about your passion which i know you have for the importance of sound of sound effects and sounds in general in the process of storytelling, which after all is what movies are all about. I mean, we as humans really respond to stories and that's why movies are so popular really, I think. Um, so talk a bit about the importance of sound in conveying a story, in storytelling. Well, um, sound is half the experience. You're using two senses to get the story. You're using your vision and you're using your ears. And, and the ears, I think, are just as important, um, if not more so, mm -hmm. in, in telling and telling the story. And, uh, and that can be in many different ways. Through sound, you can convey the emotional story. Um, through sound, you can convey just the literal story with, your, with dialogue. Um, but you can also uh, convey um, some very abstract concepts that sometimes might be hard to do with images. Uh, Suspense, fear, tension, uh, these are all these visceral, primal uh, emotions um, that, that are in the reptilian part of our brains that uh, I think sounds can tap into very, very effectively. In fact, it was Walter Murch, one of my heroes, who mm. once said that sound comes in through the back door. The images come in through the front door and sound <laughs> comes in through the back. <laughs> and so it's a very, very effective uh, storytelling tool. And like you said, storytelling is the most important part of this. This is why people go to movies. They want to have an experience. They want to feel something. They want to learn something. Uh, 
And, and it's the story that is driving that. So everything I do with my sound, in some way, it should contribute to the story and mm. for, forward the story. Um, and, you know, even on a very basic level, um, in, for example, in Transformers, uh, Bumblebee is a character whose uh, voice is completely sound effects. Um, so what he's feeling, his emotions, all of that is coming through through sound effects. So the sound, we're actually, we're doing a performance um, with our sound. And I think of sound, sound design and sound effects as um, we, we are doing a performance. And it doesn't, you know, when you're doing a score, you'll have a trumpet player doing a performance on his trumpet. He's playing that instrument and doing a performance with it. Well, I think of every sound that I record uh, as everything I'm recording is like an instrument. Um, and the art is in how I perform with that instrument and how I record it and what emotions are coming out of that. And, uh, and then, of course, how I use it with the film. But I think of uh, an orchestra might just be limited to 50 different types of instruments. But for me, the instruments are infinite. It's everything in the world. Mm. It makes me think of, and Virgil brings this up in the chat room too, um, music also has a great role in defining and expressing the emotion of a moment. You were talking about mystery and fear and so on, uh, suspense. Uh, he, he points out the uh, music used when Jaws starts his attack. You know, you have... Oh. The, you know, and that really builds tension. Um, and you're saying that sound that the sounds you do, which are apart from the music, uh, are are also in service of that. Absolutely, and that's a very great point. Uh, music is so good at creating emo an emotional feeling, and Jaws is an excellent example. And for me. Um, I think oftentimes there's this perception that there's competition between sound effects and music for the real estate, for the sonic real estate of the movie. <laughs> and, and sometimes that happens um, with, with certain crews. Uh, but for me, I, I love music. And uh, I try to find those moments where I can step back with my sound effects and let the music tell um, its emotional story when it's appropriate. And then when the music comes out, we can go visceral and uh, real and uh, gritty and get right into the middle of the action and make it very real. And then, uh, so for me, it's like an ebb and flow. Um, and it's defined by what's most effective for the movie. And, but ultimately, um, I don't think of music as being that different from sound effects and sound. Mm -hmm. um, they're both, they both have frequencies and tones, and they're both telling their own stories in different ways. And a lot of times, uh, you know, you'd be surprised that what you might think is score might be sound design. Um, so there are these beautiful gray areas, which I love to explore and, uh, mm -hmm. and fun. Now, am I correct that there are sort of three major parts to a movie soundtrack, the dialogue, the music, and the sound effects? That's correct. Um, and uh, typically the departments are kind of divided into those categories. So right now on this film we're working on, a uh, music composer is finishing up his score. It'll be scoring very soon with the big orchestra. That will go to a music mixer and 
overseen by the music editor and that whole part of uh, the track will come together. Then, and right now our dialogue team um, and ADR team are working with our entire track, uh, which happens to be a very complicated dialogue track. And then on the effects end, um, our Foley team and our sound effects team and our recordists um, and our re-recording mixers are all working together building the effects track. And uh, towards the end of the process, all of those three things will come together into the final mix. And that's where we put it all up into the big theater. And you can see over my shoulder here, um, right now I'm standing in the producer's booth of the Novak Theater at Sony Studios. And through the window is the big stage. Mm -hmm. A little hard well, to see maybe right here, but uh, we've got the big uh, countdown leader up on the big screen. And it's a full-size theater where we uh, dial in the mix. And at the end of the process, everything comes together in the final mix. Our director's there with us. Um, our music editor and composer will be there. And we dial it all in. So, mm -hmm. uh, so and that's coming up pretty soon. Um, yeah, pretty soon. Uh, <laughs> Reverb, uh, no, uh, somebody here in the chat room asked, uh, What's the relationship between the sound designer and the Foley artist? Now, the Foley artist is the person who uh, performs the footsteps and the door slams, I think, correct? Any kind of something that people do on screen, is that correct? Well, you know, it's, um, <clears throat> it varies. It really depends on the scene and also how you plan it out and do it. Um, a lot of things that you might think were Foley aren't necessarily Foley. They might be recorded and cut sound effects. Um, in the old days, almost everything was performed on a Foley stage uh, because it was so cumbersome to physically cut magnetic tape and edit everything together. So you mm -hmm. kind of needed a more live environment to just make it easier to put together. But now with digital editing software, it's so easy to construct any sort of sound. So um, we're very judicious with how we use our Foley. and. Uh, on our show, there's a Foley supervisor who cues all of the Foley that goes into the movie. And uh, what uh, I do with my co-supervisor, Ethan Vanderine, um, who I've worked with for a while and who's done wonderful movies like Lord of the Rings, um, we'll work together with the Foley supervisor to pick what we want to actually record on the Foley stage. Foley can be a very uh, slow process and uh, and I like to shoot less Foley, but the stuff I know I really, really want. And typically that will be something that either um, involves something, a performance or something very specific, but in general, it's mostly feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, feet on different material, uh, concrete or sand or whatever. Exactly. The Foley stage will have all sorts of surfaces from concrete to gravel, uh, linoleum, marble, and, uh, and then, of course, uh, Foley Stage will cover all of the intimate kind of details, um, like touching, um, cloth movements, um, things to just bring it to life. I kind of think of Foley as sonic glue um, that ties the whole track, track together and, and brings it alive. Mm. But it depends on the movie. Some movies, you might have some very abstract things happening in the Foley Stage. Uh, for example, a science fiction movie. Um, but uh, it, it varies from project right. to project. Strengths in the, <clears throat> in the chat room asks, is the Wilhelm scream in any of the Transformer movies? I don't know what the Wilhelm scream is. Do you? 
Yes, um, I'll tell you. The Wilhelm scream is a famous sound effect that's uh, it's been around uh, for decades and decades. Um, and it was originally a sound that I think was in the 20th Century Fox sound effects library. And uh, a titan in the sound world, Ben Burt, um, put together a collection of all of the movies this sound effect has been used in. And it's basically the sound of a man yelling, a man falling and yelling. Ah! <laughs> kind of okay. Sound. And it's been in tons of movies. You hear it in, you know, a pilot flying the TIE fighter in Star Wars does it. Boba Fett, when he's falling into the pit of Sarlacc, yells it. And uh, it's kind of become a little... Uh, inside joke in the sound community to sneak it in. Mm. Um, and yes, in fact, uh, we have used that sound in the Transformers movies. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if I should say where or if I should just let audiences uh, try to figure it out. <laughs> well, give us one example anyway. <laughs> well, uh, there's a robotic uh, treatment to the Wilhelm scream uh, in the first Transformers movie uh, used for a little nasty Decepticon robot named Frenzy. And there's a point where that little character gets his head kicked across um, a big uh, junkyard and you hear a little robotic. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay, very good. Uh, Hermes in the chat room asks, is 3D audio a consideration for 3D movies? Have you worked on many 3D movies? Uh, yeah, I've, I've worked on a bunch of 3D movies, um, including uh, Megamind and before that Shrek, the latest Shrek movie. And the next two movies I'm working on are also in 3D. Um, and well, in some sense, 3D audio has been around before 3D images have been around. We've had 5.1, uh, which gives a three-dimensional spatial component and uh, now, um, this movie included, we're doing in 7.1. So we have even more of a spatial component with two additional back wall speakers and, uh, in addition to our side surrounds. So that is beautiful to use uh, on 3D movies because you really get the sense of things moving past your head, being directly behind you. Um, and it allows us to pull things into the room. So there's a Z axis uh, that we can use. So um, it's, uh, it's definitely something that, uh, that we're playing with. And, and I think the future of it, um, we can go a lot further with it. There have been some technologies. There's a company called Ionosound, which... Um, uh, Eosono, I think is what you're thinking oh, I'm of. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I mispronounced it. Eosono, um, which, uh, which has some very exciting ways of uh, three-dimensionally imaging sounds. And, but I think it's something that will continue to see evolve. And I'm excited to, to use in future tracks. Mm -hmm. In fact, we've, we first met when uh, you were giving a presentation at Dolby Labs here in Burbank about the 7.1, native 7.1 soundtrack that was, uh, that was released with Megamind on Blu-ray and that in fact was used in the commercial release as well. And uh, I, at the time, I, was, I remember thinking, and, I'm, and I want to ask you this now, yes, 7.1 gives you a greater sense of envelopment and surround sound, but it still doesn't do anything for height. Oh, um, you know, it's, it's still in a plane around your head, so 360 degrees is correct, but uh, uh, what I'm, I'm hoping for, and, and maybe you can address this, 
is thinking in terms of a spherical sound field rather than a circular or planar sound field. And that is my dream. I would love to be able to do a movie where I had ceiling speakers, floor speakers. The audience member could be suspended in a big spherical uh, theater, not only sound-wise, but image-wise. Uh, could, uh, could be amazing. And I can't tell you how many times I would have loved to have um, a ceiling speaker, uh, an array of ceiling speakers to pan things over us, move, move things under us. Uh, we're still working on that one plane. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, IMAX does have a um, roof speaker, um, which is called the Voice of God speaker. So <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, it's a kind of a, there's a vertical center, and um, that's um, we will dial things into that for IMAX releases. Have um, you worked on so IMAX that, releases? Yeah, uh, I think typically most of the movies I do also have an IMAX release now. Uh, studios ah. are very into capturing that into the market, and it's mm -hmm. fun for us also to put it in that format. Uh, Monty eighty three asks, uh, "What is the what audio resolution and format do you record in?" And what does it end up as would be my addition. Mm -hmm. um, I record everything at 192 kilohertz, 24-bit. Wow. And, um, and that's just because, uh, you know, I kind of think of sound design as sculpture. And uh, I'm often tw taking the sounds and just stretching them to their limit. And with that kind of a high sample rate, high resolution, I have so much more... Um, uh, data in there, so much more resolution that I can use. So a sound at a lower sample rate, if I were to slow it down to say 5% speed, um, it would completely fall apart and you'd hear aliasing. Um, but with that high resolution, I have so much more flexibility um, in how I manipulate the sounds. So all of our libraries, actually um, since the movie Superman Returns, uh, I have recorded everything at 192.24. Wow. And, and it doesn't and, end up that way, of course. It doesn't end up that way, unfortunately. Um, most tracks are print mastered to go to theater at 48 kilohertz, 24-bit. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, though digital cinema has a capacity to go 96, um, so I would love to... I've been pushing for that for a while, so I, I would love... Uh, I would love to be able to print master at 96 and ultimately 192. And... <laughs> <laughs> Right, exactly. Um, Darth Galt in the chat room says, 3D is ruining the cinema experience. Do you agree? I was going to ask you about how you, what you feel about 3D movies. You know, there's a, there's a lot of different opinions on the format, and I think it's kind of a matter of taste. I mean, people were very upset when color came out, and people were upset when sound went stereo. They thought it was distracting that, you know, it was coming out of multiple speakers. And um, I, I think it's great. You know, for, for me, I'm very comfortable watching 3D movies, and I think for some films, it's appropriate. Um, for other films, maybe it's not appropriate. And I, I, and I certainly think that there's a lot of variation amongst audience taste. Um, some people just don't, don't like it. And, and Walter Murch is uh, included in that. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't think 3D will take off. But uh, Yeah, I, mean, I read, I read I his, uh, his uh, screed on it at, in Roger Ebert's blog, uh, right. which, which was actually, I thought, quite intelligent. Uh, talking about how 
the difference between uh, where you're focusing your eyes, which is only at the screen, and where your eyes are converging, which is in front of or at or behind the screen, depending on what you're looking at, uh, is, is the cause of most discomfort that people feel. And that made a lot of sense to me. No, I think that's right. And I think, you know, he might be a little more sensitive to it than other people. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but, you know, for, for me, it's, and I kind of apply this philosophy to sound also, you can intellectualize um, and boil it down to the technical details, but ultimately, does it work? And for a lot of people, it works great. And, uh, and I think it's still an evolving technology. Maybe, maybe Walter's right. There'll always be some people who will not get the full 3D experience and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Avatar was the highest grossing movie in history. Um, and, uh, and I, I thought the 3D looked fantastic on that. So I did too. I did too. And yet I have seen, and I've seen other movies in 3D, Megamind being one of them, uh, that I thought looked great in 3D. Um, but other movies, uh, as I recall, Despicable Me was a great movie. I thought it, as a movie it was wonderful, but the 3D just didn't do it for me. It didn't really work. I, was th I remember thinking, why did they even make this in 3D? It was, seemed kind of superfluous. I think it's become a big marketing thing now. Um, yeah. If they can say it's 3D, they can open it up on more screens, charge a premium, and get more box office receipts. And some films are not genuinely 3D from the inside out. They have a post-process applied to them. I don't know right. about Dispensable Me, but certainly Megamind was designed in 3D from the inside out. So it wasn't... Uh, the 3D layers were not created after the movie was made. It was right. all rendered that way. Um, and I think that makes a really big difference um, also in the quality. Yep, I agree. Uh, Virgil in the chat room asks, wouldn't 4K movies be a better use of the technology? What do you think of 4K? Um, well, 4K is a higher resolution, and, uh, and I think it looks great. And, uh, yeah, I have no... I don't know if it's better. Um, it'd be great if we could have that kind of resolution and stereo imaging and uh, the whole thing. Sure, sure. Well, I've got a bunch more questions for you, but before I get to those, I'd like to take a moment to uh, thank our host, our uh, sponsor for this episode, uh, Hover.com. Uh, Hover is a domain name registration and management service that makes the whole process simple. For Hover's transfer concierge service, free for our audience, go to Hover.com slash HTG. Uh, Hover's all about making domain registration uh, and uh, service very simple. Doesn't sell a ton of services. They focus on making it easy to register and manage domains and email. And they have a new no-hold policy for customer service. Dig this. Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern. When you call, you'll get a live person and they won't put you on hold. That right there is worth something significant if you ask me. And here's an exclusive for the Twit audience, free transfer concierge service. Hover's offering Twit audience members free domain transfer no matter how many domain names you have. It's a $25 service fee on the site. Just call Hover, give them your username and password, and they'll take it from there. Hover will get the authorization codes, deal with all the emails, let you know when your domain names are on Hover and working exactly as you want them to. The transfer itself is $10 per domain name, and this extends the domain one year beyond its current registration date. 
Oh, <clears throat> my apologies. It's not hover.com slash HTG. It's htg.hover.com. <laughs> I'm so glad I got that right. Thank you, John, for correcting that. Uh, for the Twit audience, Hover will handle the whole hassle of the transfer for you at no additional cost. To get Hover's free transfer concierge service, call uh, Hover's customer service number listed on their website. And if you need a new domain, get 10% off by going to htg.hover.com. Got that right this time. And use the offer code HTG. We thank Hover for their support of Home Theater Geeks. Thanks so much. Okay, getting back to Eric Adol. We, um, we've been talking a lot about sound design and um, creating sounds and so on. I'd love to get a few stories, war stories, if you will, uh, of examples of how you've collected weird sounds. You gave a couple of examples with Megamind when I saw you at Dolby uh, mm -hmm. using the Van de Graaff generator to get this kind of electrical sound. Uh, which was very fascinating. You even had one there and you showed it to us. It was, it was great. Um, can, can you give us some other stories? I know you've, you, for example, you recorded animal sounds and had a couple of interesting experiences with that. Oh, animals are great to record. Um, yeah, you know, every movie you wind up recording different collections of things. You know, uh, Valkyrie, we were recording World War II weapons and uh, P-41 fighters, uh, 50 cal World War II machine guns. Um, uh, and for science fiction movies, we'll, you know, do those sort of flavor of things. And then for movies that might have big monsters and beasts, uh, we would do animals, uh, which you mentioned. Uh, recently, uh, I did the fourth Shrek movie, Shrek Forever After. And there's a big giant dragon in that film. And uh, so we were kind of coming up with ideas of what we could make that dragon out of and give him personality, but also size. And this particular dragon um, had a sweet side. So sometimes it'd have to be sort of sweet, sometimes really vicious. Uh, so we went out to a animal refuge uh, down here in Southern California uh, that had a whole collection of uh, animals um, and we recorded a couple of elephants, was probably the most fun that we had on that day. And uh, elephants have a lot of personality, but it's often very difficult to get them to make sounds. Um, we got lucky when we first got there, we got this really deep guttural growl and one of the most terrifying sounds I think I've ever heard. And uh, it turns out that that's actually a sound an elephant makes when they're happy. Mm. Uh, so, but we also wanted trumpeting sounds. I was, I had in my head a, a sound that um, for this dragon, when it was doing its roar, that it might have almost a bellowing element that maybe I could make out of an elephant trumpet slowed down. So we were trying all sorts of techniques to get these elephants to trumpet for us. And they were just playing tricks with us. And one of our recordists, uh, was doing a close-up recording of the elephant not making any sound, and the elephant decided it would be more fun to just throw dust at him and just basically, they're very clever creatures and they like to play with you. Um, but eventually we were, we were able to get them to trumpet by uh, separating the two elephants and then reuniting them. And they started stampeding. And of course, uh, we were all, all of us with our headphones on and our little Zeppelin recording mics and rigs, uh, we were in the middle. 
And uh, it's, it's at times like that when you're, you're listening to the sound going, man, this sounds fantastic, but I better get out of the way fast or I'm going to be crushed. <laughs> and, and I've had a number of experiences like that, not just with animals, but with vehicles and weapons and uh, one fun experience with a big explosion um, that uh, completely covered me head to foot in debris, dust, silts. It took me two days to clean my rig out with compressed air and little alcohol swabs. And but oh, uh, but those are those are the fun those are the fun experiences because they give a whole nother dimension uh, to the work that we do and ultimately I think help bring. Um, bring something special to the track. Whenever you're out recording and you come into these unexpected situations, they always uh, give new ideas, um, always point us in exciting directions. So that's mm-hmm. part of the fun. What's in, your, what's in your portable recording rig? I use a seven, uh, Sound Devices 722, uh, which records to a 40 gigabyte hard drive. And uh, I use hmm. a bunch 40 of 40 gigabyte mic- seems kind of small, actually, these days, right? It does seem small, but I can I can have that free roll for you know 24 hours, um, two channels, and uh, it'll it'll keep going. So for for audio, um, it's actually quite good. Uh, if I were going to let the rig roll for a few days, um, I, I would need to have a different solution. But typically, we don't roll for that long, so it's actually quite quite useful. Um, so I'm recording onto the sound devices and uh, I use a bunch of different microphones depending on what I'm recording. Uh, if I'm doing underwater stuff, I'll use hydrophones. If I'm doing kind of uh, vibration kind of things, I'll use contact mics or um, if I'm doing bigger sounds, I might use PZMs. But typically my favorite microphone is uh, the Neumann 191. It's a stereo shotgun. Uh, I record in MS, so um, I'm able to later dial in the stereo imaging. Um, By the way, we should mention, we should define MS stands for <laughs> mid-side. And what, what you do is you actually are recording, recording the sound straight in front of you and also to each side. So you actually have three channels of audio in that case, right? Well, it's it's two two channels, and it's it's quite interesting. Um, for the mid channel, there's a um, hypercardioid, and then for the sides, which, which means figure, very directional, very highly directional very, in front. Very directional, and then for the sides, there's a figure eight pattern. And uh, recording those undecoded, I can later um, extrapolate the imaging between those two channels, um, and so it's great for flexibility. Uh, if I'm out recording a car, for example, and then this beautiful crow flies by and he's calling, I can whip the mic over there, get a clean center channel of him without the noise all around, mm-hmm. um, and and later be able to dial that in however I want. So that's typically uh, typically what I'm recording on. Do you ever record with... Um with, um, I, I'm trying to think of the name of the mic. Is it an ISO mic? It, it actually records in 5.1 or 7.1 all at the same time. Uh, do you ever use a, a multi-channel mic setup like that? Um, we have used those ISO mics, and we've also used some really cool um, head mics with human ear shapes to, to get a very true, realistic uh, surround image. Um, but typically we don't use those. Typically we'll use spaced pairs and we'll space microphones on stands. Um, mm-hmm. So we've got more discrete channels and we can choose how we want to use them later. Mm. 
works better in, in terms of mixing after the fact. It can. It, it depends, but it mm -hmm. can, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there's so much more to talk about, but I wonder if, uh, if there's any way we can get into the uh, Novak Theater and take a look around. Absolutely. Um, looks like the, the guys are back from lunch. They're running some picture right now. Um, I'll, I guess, uh, go off for a second, take my computer onto the stage, and we'll resume. Okay, great. Meanwhile, right. uh, while you're doing that, I will, uh, I should have put the ad here, actually. <laughs> oh, well. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I will certainly uh, vamp while you're, while you're talking about that. Jammer B has it correct. Uh, the, uh, the microphones in the ears of the dummy head is called binaural miking. Uh, and it, it gives you a sense of what it's like to actually hear that sound because it's got uh, outer ears, which are known as the pinna, and uh, it, it gives you a sense of it, it, the sound diffracts around those structures and into the microphones, which are in the dummy head's ear canals. So uh, that's, what, uh, that's what that's about. And I do understand the point about making uh, recordings in mono or stereo and then being able to mix them to 7.1 or 5.1 later, because if you record them in 5.1, that's what you've got. You're kind of stuck with it. I think that's good for ambient-type sounds, probably, but for specific sounds, uh, it, it probably doesn't work quite as well. Uh, another thing that, uh, that I know that Eric uh, recorded for Megamind was a great big giant coil of copper wire. Uh, and this is available commercially in a device called a Zoob tube. I have one of these, not handy, but uh, it actually makes a kind of a kind of a sound. But he made one that was like 10 feet long, and uh, it, it really sounded amazing. Uh, the um, the uh, Van de Graaff generator was the sound of the little brain bots that were hovering around uh, in Megamind's lair. Uh, and that was very cool, too. Okay, Eric, are we back? Uh, we're back. Here we are in the Kim Novak Theater here at Sony Picture Studios in Culver City. And I'm here with Greg Russell, re-recording mixer on the show that we won't mention to you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Greg, how's it going? Uh, very nice to see you. How's Thank everything? you. And you. It's going great. We're having a great time uh, talking with Eric and, uh, and uh, really look look forward to the opportunity to see a little bit of the uh, Novak uh, theater there where uh, where you guys are working on your next big project it's a summer blockbuster for this coming summer right uh, that is correct that is so correct we're gonna, we're gonna see it pretty soon so what are we looking at here we got the big big mixer console there so, <clears throat> excuse me this is a Harrison uh, all digital uh, console it's called an MPC uh, MPC 4D uh, it's their latest and greatest uh, from Harrison. Uh, it's a phenomenal console, very powerful console. How um, many inputs? Uh, uh, overall, it's over 500 inputs. <laughs> <laughs> and and, do, and you, do you ever use all those inputs? Well, actually, when we get to the final mix, all of our pre-dub material, um, along with some additional, uh, an additional 32 channels, of information that Eric will be feeding me live during the final mix will total about 255 inputs uh, all together mm. on the final mix. Now that includes dialogue, music, sound effects, everything. No, that is just the sound effects oh, department. Holy smokes, that's just the sound effects. <laughs> that is correct. 
That is correct. That's all Eric and Ethan and all their troops, all their material uh, is going gonna, is gonna to fill up my entire console. And if you can look, you're basically looking at this console, but it is six layers. Oh, we lost them. No, we're here. Okay. Um, it's basically six layers deep. So it's, ba it, it, it's realistically, it's six times what you physically see here. So, um, and all of that will be operational upon the final mix uh, of this film. So each of those faders can control up to six different inputs? Um, that is correct, because as you can see, I can toggle down. This is the top layer. This is the second layer, the third layer, the fourth layer, and so I on, see. all the way okay. down. So, so you can just toggle a button, and, and then that, that fader controls one layer or the other. That is correct. That is what, hap what happens yeah. if you have to if you have to manipulate two or more of those layers at the same time? You just make sure you never have to, right? Well, no, yeah, you you just automate one at a time. Uh, you ah, go through of course, of course. And one because uh, these consoles are fully automated. Um, everything that I do to that top layer, then I can write that and put that in playback and go down to the next layer and work on that and go down and so forth. So uh, sounds, sounds like a pretty tedious process. Well, you know, a lot of that tedious work we do during the pre-dubbing phase so that when it comes to the final mix, it's really overall balances and interbalances of our effects, uh, our, our effects palette against the dialogue and the, uh, and the music. So uh, all that fine-tuning, we hope to do most of that during the pre-dubbing phase of the project. Gotcha. Now, are you the mixer for, for everything or just for the sound effects? Uh, I will be doing just the sound effects on this show, which um, is a large enough job. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess there's a music mixer and uh, uh, a dialogue mixer. I mean, there, there must on be this, one of those as well. On this show, I believe, uh, well, uh, the, my partner on this film will be Gary Summers, and he will be handling the dialogue and the music on the film. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we share the responsibilities, and it usually balances out, uh, considering this is such a uh, strong effects-driven film, that um, it, it, it works out pretty well that way. Uh, tell us a little bit about the theater. How big is the screen? What kind of projector are you using in there? Oh, goodness gracious. Um, uh, we have a Christie. Uh, it's a, uh, I believe, uh, gosh, I, I wish I had my my technicians in here. The screen is about 55 feet across. Um, it's a pretty large room. Uh, the volume of this room uh, is equivalent to a large IMAX theater um, in terms of uh, ceiling height and so forth. I don't know if you can see much of it's, that. Uh, it's um, kind of dark, but we can sort of see it. There's, a, there's the projector window back there. And the reason for doing it in this large room, even though you're like the only people in there, it's two or three or four people in there, is so that you get a sense of what it's going to sound like in a real theater? Absolutely. This, is, uh, this environment, to me, is the, uh, the perfect environment to create uh, a movie soundtrack so that this, uh, what we hear here and what we do here will translate relatively well um, out in the field uh, to, to the various theaters in the field. But what about the difference between the acoustics of a theater such as that, which is essentially empty, as it is in your case, and then full of people, which are going to dramatically affect the acoustics, aren't they? 
Yeah, that that's true, and yet we do have uh, theater seats because this is a theater. Um, it's designed as a theater. Um, it, you know, realistically, it changes, but it only changes a little bit. And mm. uh, as far as we're concerned, all of the the, the balance mixes that we uh, the the all the decisions that we make within a mix. Um, Without a uh, without a room filled with people or with a with it filled uh, doesn't change all that much for us in the oh. decisions that we make. Okay, all right. I, I didn't realize that it was. It, it turns out it's I guess a less of an effect, at least for your work, what you need to do than no than I thought it was. No question. No yeah. question. Okay. Cool. Well, hey, thanks so much for taking some time with us. I really appreciate it. My my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Hello, Eric. Yeah, hello, Eric. Great. You know, I was going to ask you, he was mentioning something about when you're feeding him a bunch of um, sound effects and he's mixing them and so on. And you mentioned earlier about performing the sound effects live, uh, almost like a musician. And I wanted you to, to say a few words about that, because that sounds very interesting to me, as if you're almost playing an instrument with all these pre-recorded sounds. I mean, are you watching the picture while you're doing that or how does that work? Um, it depends. Oftentimes we'll just be uh, recording sounds with the image in mind and then later bring it in and tailor carve it surgically to the image. But sometimes I'll work directly to the picture. Um, for example, on the Transformers movies, there's scenes with Bumblebee where a lot of his vocals are processed versions of just my voice. So I'll watch the scene and get the flow of it down so he can have an emotional arc and start somewhere and then wind up somewhere. Um, so that's a very nice situation to do live, to picture in real time so you get all of the nuances of the performance and it's not just pieces stitched together. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't like things, I don't like sound, sound effects to sound like sound effects or sound stitched together. They should sound natural and effortless and create the illusion that you're there. Now, if you're performing your voice, do you have to be a member of SAG? <laughs> Do you get on-screen credit for being the voice of, uh, of the character? You know, it really depends. If it's recognizable as a human voice, then it's a gray area. But if it's not, it, um, it's a sound effect. And mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> I'll leave it there. <laughs> uh, what is it like working with the other parts of the team, the director, the animators in the case of an animated movie, the composer? Uh, I, I'm sure there must be a lot of back and forth with them. Uh, it's and it, it really depends on what the movie is. Some directors are less involved than others. Uh, a director like Terrence Malick or Michael Bay are very, very involved, and our sound aficionados have great ears, and they want to be a part of it. Um, so other directors might not be as interested. So it really depends on the movie. But uh, every movie, we collaborate with the um, picture editors, getting the, the shape of the picture cut and the sound cut all working. Um, and I love working with composers, figuring out um, what scenes we might want to fe feature music, what scenes we might want to feature sound effects, and where music might come out. And uh, so, um, and on a movie like Kung Fu Panda, for example, uh, Hans Zimmer and our sound effects team worked very, very closely uh, together because we have to. Um, if you have a big score driving and then kung fu fighting, which in it, by its very nature is very rhythmic and it's almost like, you know, you're doing a drum solo with the sound effects. <laughs> so 
<laughs> so I've actually I've actually read some things that you've written about the uh, importance of rhythm in creating sound effects, and I'm sure what you're saying is a perfect example. In in fight scenes, it is it's it's very rhythmic, almost musically rhythmic. Absolutely, rhythm is so so critical to making something play and making it sound right. Um, if you put something in a rhythm that feels right, it doesn't matter if it's in sync or not. It will stick to the screen and play right. And, and if music is going, uh, we need to make sure that all of our sound effects are jiving exactly with that music. So if there's a drum beat in the music going on and then our guns or our explosions or our punches are playing a different tune, that's not going to work. Um, it needs to be a holistic experience where everything comes together and feels like a unified uh, track. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's the kind of clarity and that uh, that I really like. I like things to really be clean, line up. I don't want any sort of mud in the track. I don't want sounds flaming against each other. Everything should fit together like a Tetris game. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have noticed that, that on some uh, movie soundtracks, I've actually noticed that sound, certain sound effects hit right on the beat of the music that's playing. And I've mm -hmm. wondered if, if that was intentional or, 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 or how intentional it was or, or whether it was accidental. You're saying it's more intentional. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, what, what we do here, we go through every single frame of the movie and dial everything in exactly um, with a surgical knife. Nothing is left to chance everything is looked at and considered. And so those are kind of the simplest tweaks that we do, just lining those kind of things up. But it's uh, rarely accidental. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were talking earlier about the future of sound for film, and, and uh, we touched upon 7.1, which isn't really the future, it's sort of now. And uh, from what I understand from you and others, 7.1 is now becoming sort of the standard for theatrical release and subsequent Blu-ray release. Um, and we talked a little bit about possibly entering into more of a 3D space. Uh, what else do you see in the future of sound for film? Well, it's very exciting that we now have 7.1. Um, all of us here feel that it's a big improvement on 5.1 uh, spatially. Uh, it gives just a whole nother dimension uh, our kind of our joke is that it's too better. <laughs> <That's what laughs> <we keep> <laughs> All right. Um, okay. But but I think it's an arbitrary number. Um, there's no reason why seven one should be as the standard over anything else. Um, I think as time moves on, we will, like you mentioned, see much. I hope see much more uh, spatial uses of uh, speakers in in theater environments from utilizing uh, all axes, the ceilings, the floor. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a very exciting, uh, exciting thing in the future. And, uh, and I'm, I'm very curious to see uh, what other technologies will come out that, um, that uh, will, will bring sound to the next level. Um, we can speculate, you know, it's a matter of science fiction where we'll be in another 30 years from now. Maybe mm -hmm. there won't be speakers. Maybe we'll be tapping right into our audio, our sound nerve. Um, <laughs> Jacking in, so to speak. Yeah, I, I, who knows? Um, that's, you know, that's uh, the realm of writers and, and thinkers and futurists. But um, 
the one thing I do know is that change is the only constant and uh, it's going to change. It'll keep evolving. We're not where we're going to wind up. Yes, indeed. And you'll be right there as these changes occur, I'm sure. I want to thank Eric Adol for being my guest today. A great conversation about sound design and a look behind the scenes at the uh, Sony Kodak, uh, uh, Novak uh, Theater there. Uh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Scott. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Um, you know, Eric does not have a website of his own. He does so much work for other companies, Sony and Paramount and all these companies that... Uh, uh, he, uh, he doesn't have his own website, but you can certainly experience his work on many motion pictures uh, that are, have now been released and are coming out in the future, including one this summer, which I'm sure you'll recognize once it appears. My online homes are ultimateavmag.com and hometheater.com. You can email me at scott at twit.tv, and you can follow me on Twitter at htgeekscott. Next week is, special, is a special edition of Home Theater Geeks. I'll be live at the NAB show with Leo Laporte. And the podcast will include interviews from the Panasonic, JVC, and Sony booths on the show floor, including an interview with the chief technical officer of Panasonic US, a very high-ranking Panasonic guy and a really interesting fellow uh, who I've talked to many times in the past. I'm really looking forward to interviewing uh, when I'll be asking the same question to all of these the representatives from all of these companies, which is, how is the consumer experience impacted or improved by what you're showing here at the National Association of Broadcasters show? So I'm really looking forward to finding out more about that, and I sure hope you will join me. Until then, geek out. <laughs>